G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical Nephilim. I tell you what, Tim, I'm really glad that last week's episode is behind us now. We can forget about all of that drama with the you know, recording issues and the weather, COVID all of that stuff. Um, and let's move on to something new and exciting this week. Yeah, well, it's funny you should say that, but actually we need to hang around in that same space for a while because, well, there's actually a lot more to be said about the subject matter that we were dealing with last time. So I thought we should spend a bit more time on it and see what comes out. So last time was just lots of talking, and this time there'll be even lots more talking. Yeah, pretty much, mate. Oh, boy. But you are feeling and looking, I must say, much better now though, right? Yeah, pretty sure I'm out of COVID town now. I was kind of enjoying all the isolation a bit too much, to be honest. Uh, yeah, the the major problem was not being able to get out of a crowded house full of sick kids so we could record in peace. A lovely Aussie band. It's only natural in the world where you live to enjoy your private universe. Uh, crowded house jokes. Nice. Yeah. Well, yes, and there's plenty more where they came from. Um, I can't help myself. Once I give in to temptation, it's something so strong feel like i feel possessed okay that's enough pineapple head uh, we've got to get on with this or we'll be talking for another hour whether with you or by myself see what i did there nice very nice and subtle don't dream it's over indeed okay so why are we revisiting the last episode and going back over the same ground i thought the last episode was was pretty comprehensive in fact it's probably one of our longest episodes yet i would hesitate to say uh, we stated that passage in particular for almost half an hour and then tackled two questions as well. Yeah, I just thought some of these things were interesting enough to warrant a little more time and attention given before we plough ahead into more scripture and run into the same problems again anyway. Now, when you say problems, what do you mean? Well, I can see some people potentially coming up with objections to some of the points that we raised. So... One of the first things that came up was the objection you often hear from fundamentalists and people who are really into literalism. I recently saw an article online from Answers in Genesis where the author claimed that he was able to trace his genealogy right back to one of Noah's three sons. And he felt that this was important because the ability to take these early stories in the primeval history literally was essential to being able to also take the New Testament at face value. He was essentially saying that if you can't trace your genealogy back to Noah's three sons, then you can't trust the stories of Jesus and his resurrection and the forgiveness of sins and, and everything else. It has to be literally true or else none of it's true. That could be a bit problematic, I guess, given that you know so much of Scripture is stuff like songs, poetry, etc. It's obviously not supposed to be read like a textbook. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, Chris. And the simple fact seems to be lost on a lot of people. You know, I've talked before about genealogies and how to understand them properly. And for anyone who's looking for a good resource on that, uh, I would recommend a book called The Genealogical Adam and Eve, uh, written by S. Joshua Swamidas. Uh, in the book, he attempts to reconcile a face value reading of Genesis with a scientific understanding of the way that genealogies work. I do remember you mentioning that before when we were talking about Nephilim bloodlines and that kind of thing back, way back in season one. Yeah, yeah. Swamadas doesn't attempt to address other cultural concerns relevant to the interpretation of Genesis. And because of that, in, in my own opinion, this attempt at reconciliation of the two views isn't really necessary. Because if you read Genesis the way that we've been doing it here on this podcast, 
you're not going to find any conflict with the scientific understanding of human descent. And I have the work of Swamidas, among others, to be able to thank for, uh, for being able to see that. What he shows in his work is that when you look at genealogies, you're working backwards through time. And for every generation that you go back, your number of ancestors doubles. You have two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, etc. By the time you go back about 3,000 years, you have so many ancestors that you are actually related to every other person in the entire world at that time. And what that means is that beyond 3,000 years, you're related to everybody who ever lived, which naturally includes our earliest ancestors, whoever they were. I've mentioned this before, you're related as much to Noah as you are to King David or Abraham or King Og of Bashan or Amalek or Homer or Ramesses II or anyone you care to mention from anywhere in the ancient world. So being able to trace your genealogy back to one of Noah's sons is really meaningless outside of the literary context of scripture. Interesting point. As always, by literary context, you mean that this is part of a story that a author is using to make a point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The reason that those genealogies mean something is not for personal application to yourself and finding your place in the world, but for a corporate application to the people of Scripture, the nation of Israel, the people of faith that the Bible is chiefly concerned with. The reason genealogies occur in a story is because they make a point relevant to the story. We have to be careful with this kind of stuff because without a proper understanding of how to interpret genealogies, we may lead people to believe that if they're of the wrong bloodline or the wrong family tree, that they can't be saved. The truth is that there's no wrong line of descent for salvation as long as you're a human being. And before you ask, if you really are concerned that you're not a human being, listeners, <laughs> please go back and listen to season one of the podcast where I went to great pains to alleviate people's fears about that in some detail for those who came in late. Yeah, that was pretty weird and eye-opening for me because I never even thought that, that was a thing until I started reading some of the questions that we get here on the show. You know, what a cruel enemy we have indeed who destroys a person's very sense of identity. This is something that we actually talked about at church on Sunday, actually. But thank God that Jesus has restored us into a relationship with God to pull us out of that confusion and darkness. Amen. Yeah. Anyway, the, the point here concerning the article from Answers in Genesis is Simply that tying your faith in Jesus Christ to a modern understanding of the text in Genesis really means that once you start to understand Genesis correctly, everything you built on that modern foundation begins to crumble. And if you don't learn how to reconstruct that faith correctly, you might be in danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and rejecting Christ on the basis that literalism isn't working out for you. Let's bring this back to Genesis. If the text of Genesis 1 describes God bringing order to the cosmos and establishing his rule and authority over all of it, rather than the origin of material things. Does that mean that God didn't create material things? Well, no, it doesn't. Genesis 1 is not under any obligation to address the concerns of modern humans who live thousands of years after it was written, and the New Testament addresses those concerns adequately in any case. So if Adam and Eve were selected from a multitude of humans that existed outside of the Garden of Eden and were given responsibility as representatives of mankind under God, does that mean, then, that there has ever been any person who did not have access to the grace of God and everlasting life through him? Well, no, it doesn't. Because modern individualism doesn't negate the fact that in the ancient world, people functioned as communities and identified themselves according to what they had in common rather than their differences. The early chapters of Genesis are designed to function for a community. 
and as such, they include everybody in the story. That's why, as I've said many times, the man and the woman do not have names in these early chapters, because we should be able to see ourselves, all of us, in these individuals. So if the Garden of Eden is a figurative representation of the divine counsel of God, which is his metaphor to describe the blessings that God conferred upon his human creations, does that validate the gospel? No, no, it doesn't. The, the presence of other divine beings in the garden does not take away from the fact that human beings are responsible for their own transgression. And that kind of leads on to this next question. If the serpent in the garden is not really a literal talking snake, does that undermine our faith in Jesus Christ as Saviour? I can't believe I have to answer this question, but uh, no, can't ham, uh, it doesn't. The, the reason that the serpent is referred to as a serpent at all is because the original term Nakash has three distinct interpretive options which are all valid in gaining an understanding of the function of this divine being in scripture. Okay, we talked about this before. Remember, these are ancient people trying to describe abstract concepts in material terms. And names in scripture are always functional. The name is designed to tell you something about the role that this person plays in the story or there's some significant element in their story that's part of the message of scripture. When we use names today, it's different because when you ask somebody, what's your name? You're really asking them, what noise should I make to get your attention? And that really has no relevance in scripture at all. So we may never know the actual names of many people in the Bible because whatever we find in writing is likely to affirm their function within the community and story of that community rather than the name that their mother gave them. Hmm. So if it turns out that a close reading of the text of Genesis 3 reveals that it was in the nature of humankind from the outset to be self-centered and that sin and guilt were not inherited from Adam and Eve, does that mean that God created us to be evil? Yeah, and we're getting serious. <laughs> well, let, let's explore that one a little more. Does it impugn God that the people he created were inherently focused on finding their own way to meet their own needs? In other words, is God a bad guy for creating bad people? I want to unpack that one a bit before we go any further. As I mentioned before, we've talked a great deal on this show about the idea that mankind was introduced to the Garden of Eden by God and given a job to do. That's what creation is. Remember back in season one, we actually devoted an episode of the show to understanding what creation actually means, according to the biblical understanding, and not the Greek philosophical understanding that our culture seems to have appropriated. Biblical creation is the act of setting something aside and making it distinct for the purpose of a particular function. This is an activity carried out by God or God's designated agent. We're not talking about material origins here. When scripture says that God formed the man, dust of the earth, it simply means that he was selected and set apart, and that is the very first part of the creative act. After setting the man apart, God gives him a job to do. Assigning function and purpose to the man is the very core of what biblical creation is all about. This is the same process by which God created the heavens and the earth. We're not talking about material origins. We're talking about setting something aside for a purpose. Again, if material origins are something you're concerned with, then you should be reading the New Testament for that. For example, John 1, Hebrews 1, because the New Testament addresses these later Greek philosophical concerns, whereas the Old Testament does not address this question because nobody was asking. Since we don't have material origin in view in Genesis, it follows that the creation of man was not his material origin or the beginning of his physical existence, 
The Bible is silent on this issue, and I realise that that is not going to be satisfactory for those people who insist that the Bible has to tell us the answers to everything that our modern scientific minds can ask about. That's really too bad. If you're going to read the scriptures biblically, then you just have to get past that modern mindset. Of course, the other thing that you could do if you really want those answers is you could do some research on what the consensus of science is telling us. But don't waste your time with the outer fringe of the scientific community that is attempting to appease biblical literalists by bending the truth. At some stage, we have to accept that the God of all truth has revealed to us not only the truth of the Bible, but the truth of the real observable world around us. And the path to reconciling both truths is to do your best to understand both of them correctly, rather than fudging one to line up with a bad understanding of the other. So where is all this leading? Well, what I'm saying here is that since Genesis is not telling us about the material origin of humankind, and instead it tells us about the selection of a particular man to be the representative of all mankind before God, we have no reason to suggest that this man is morally perfect or better than anybody else. God didn't choose the man because he was exceptional, but because he was ordinary. Again, we covered that in great detail earlier. The fact that God chose the man from outside of the garden means that the man physically existed before he was created or set apart by God. And that means that the act of creation did not change the man's nature, but his function. And that means that we need to make a distinction between what it is human nature to do and what is a violation of that assigned function. The fact that humans do things based on self-interest doesn't make them sinful unless that act of self-interest conflicts with the law of God. So if this man is just like us and we are all sinners, doesn't it follow then that Adam also was, just like us, a sinner? Well, I'm going to suggest that that would be true except for one major detail. The Bible tells us that where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is what I was hinting at a moment ago. Adam was blameless until the moment that he broke the law. He and all those like him outside of the garden had been innocent, but he was called to a higher purpose. It requires the relinquishment of self-interest for the benefit of the community. When God created the man and the woman for the purpose of representing him to all mankind, God was setting Adam and Eve apart for holiness, not for sin. So we cannot impugn God on the basis that Adam and Eve were still creatures with free will who had a natural proclivity towards self-interest. I don't like using the kind of terminology that evolutionists use because of all the anti-evolutionary gut reaction that many believers have against it. But to be honest, that's where self-interest comes from. It's a survival mechanism. It's part of the common experience of every living organism. So it should be no surprise that it's common to us as well. That doesn't become a problem until someone with a higher purpose in mind comes along and gives us a function and an instruction contrary to our natural desire. God does this for our benefit, but we're always looking for the shortcut, for the easy way, because that's what comes natural to us. Again, where there's no law, there is no transgression. So with all that in mind, then what happens to those outside the garden after Adam and Eve broke the law? Because Adam is their representative before God. They all are brought under condemnation through Adam's transgression. So what's the path for their reconciliation then? Mm, well, as we're going to see as we continue our study through Genesis 3 this season, God makes a way for reconciliation through the woman. I generally try to avoid doing a lot of theology on the show because it really just clouds the issue, but sometimes you just can't avoid it. All theology is based on interpretation, and interpretation is a fickle thing. My goal in this podcast is to help you with interpretation so you can straighten out your theology rather than feed your theology and then you have to force the scripture to fit that theology. 
that's the way that organisations such as Answers in Genesis tend to tackle things. And we saw that with the whole genealogy issue that I mentioned before. Reading Genesis in a certain way so that it fits your understanding of the New Testament is an absolutely terrible hermeneutic. Now, if anyone has questions on what we've just covered or anything arising from that, please feel free to drop me a line and we'll work it out. I mean, if you've got a good question, I might even feature it on the show. Um, and another thing that I think I should mention, it's kind of related to what we just said, is that interpretation of scripture, if done correctly, is quite valid. Yeah, I mean, you get people who just stand there and say, well, the Bible doesn't say that anytime you try to draw any kind of conclusion from the, the biblical text. Yeah, yeah. But interpretation is exactly what the authors of the New Testament were doing, and they wrote based on their own understanding of the Old Testament. In fact, interpretation is what the original authors were doing when they interpreted the events that they were writing about. And that's exactly what the authors of Second Temple period literature were doing before them. In some cases, we have the original Old Testament text interpreted by Second Temple period authors, and then that interpretation is interpreted in turn by New Testament authors, and that gets turned into scripture about which people will then turn around and say, well, you can't interpret that, all you can do is read it. Nevertheless, uh, the church fathers wrote according to their interpretation of scripture, and later theologians wrote according to their interpretations of the scriptures and the fathers, and so it goes on. Interpretation is essential because otherwise meaning dies with the author. The moment the ink dries on the page. It's my opinion that what we call the inspiration of scripture is a process that continues into the interpretive act. Now, that's not to say that every interpretation is a valid one. As I mentioned already, there is a correct way to do it. That's what we're trying to get at here on this podcast. We try to read things in a consistent manner throughout scripture, and we take into account things that were culturally relevant, including um, the, the manner of interpretation that we see at work in the pages of scripture. And this is why you can't really say scripture alone. You know, that might have been okay with regard to the first audience of scripture. But we require context in addition to scripture in order to make sense of it. We need the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So we looked at all these Second Temple period writings last time. And the way that they informed our interpretation of scripture was by reinforcing the archetypal view of the Genesis 1 to 3 narrative. And that was important to see because it gives us confidence that we should be reading the New Testament with the same understanding. And reading Paul in light of these extra biblical passages really helps to understand that he was not inventing a new way to read Genesis, but instead he was being consistent with traditional Jewish thought. The implication then is that we also ought to be consistent with that same line of thinking. Getting back to the core of the issue that we're addressing today, the message of the gospel, the message of the New Testament, that Paul and others have extracted from their Old Testament has always been that moral perfection is not the issue for humanity. Our species has never known moral perfection. From creation, we were already looking for an advantage, resentful of the difference between ourselves and the divine, and willing to betray each other and ourselves to take what we thought was best for us according to our own judgment. That's exactly what's playing out right here in Genesis 3, and we haven't even got to the part where the deed is done. The only reason that Adam began as innocent was because there was no law against his fleshly nature. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, but I thought the idea was to get out of the mess of law and sin and death so we can get back to being like Adam was. And my response to that is, well, mate, we were never supposed to go backward. You need to stop applying idealism and start applying some eschatology here because we need to be better than Adam. We need to be looking forward. We need a solution that isn't rooted in moral perfection because we as a species are incapable of that. We were never going to make it there. The sooner we realised that Adam was chosen in spite of his imperfection and in spite of his insignificance, the sooner we understand that this was never about man being good. Never, ever. 
not even on the day we were created. And that should come as a relief. Because if we didn't gain our status in God's sight that way, we certainly can't lose it that way either. You're never beyond redemption as long as you remain faithful. Never, ever. Again, we were called to a higher calling as representatives of God, so don't turn around and say that God's not fair because it's in our human nature to be selfish and sinful. God offers us, while we are sinful, grace, participation in his family, a process called life that leads to sharing in his glory, although at this early stage in the Genesis narrative, we haven't yet seen any explicit expressions of that hope. It's coming. It certainly is, Tim. We'll, we'll see that as we get deeper into this season. But for now, it's time for a giant questions. And just one question for today, but, oh, it's a goodie. All right, let's have it. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us in the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Okay. Well, we have a question here from Jeremiah who uh, had a question on the show last week as well. This time he wants to know about the identity of Job in the Bible. All right. Well, that is certainly an interesting question. So let's get into that. And we'll start with a bit of background about the book. The book of Job is classified as wisdom literature, and that's why it's located in the place where you find it within the Protestant canon. Other biblical canons may have it located in different places. We don't know who wrote the book, but we can be quite sure that it was not Job himself. I should probably mention that it's a poetic book as well. It's that's the uh, the genre. So this isn't a history uh, book or, you know, some kind of a, a journal or record. The book of Job is often said to be concerned with what we call the problem of evil or the question of why bad things happen to good people. But the real issue addressed in the book is whether we're in a position to question God's way of doing things, given our limited perspective on the world. The book of Job was written in Hebrew and translated relatively early into a wide variety of languages. Translators have had a hard time with the text of Job because it features a lot of unusual word choices and an archaic style, which makes it difficult for readers, in much the same way that reading the King James Version is difficult for people who've grown up on modern English. The difference is that when the King James Version was written, that was the current writing style at the time, whereas Job was intentionally written to be old-fashioned as a stylistic choice. That archaic style has made dating the book problematic. But there are certain references to things within the book that help to narrow down a massive window of potential dates. It quickly becomes apparent that the story of Job is set in a time period earlier than the date in which the book is written. Now, since Ezekiel mentions Job in Ezekiel 14 and assumes the reader's familiarity with him, it would be safe to assume that the story of Job was in wide circulation among Israelites prior to the exilic period. The mention in the book of Job of technology, such as iron engraving tools, would be indicative of a date later than the 12th century BC. So what do the experts, uh, such as yourself, uh, say about the dating? Well, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but uh, <laughs> some scholars have suggested that the date of the book could actually be as late as the 3rd century BC, which is based on themes found in the book, which are generally characteristic of later writings. And as examples of that, we have the the hope expressed in Job and the focus in the early chapters on a divine enemy responsible for instigating Job's plight. These are features typical of the Second Temple period. 
However, you could equally argue that these are just early examples of features which later became more widely used. And a date that early does not take into account the well-established date of Ezekiel's writing, which has to be later than Job, as I mentioned before. So the dating game is difficult, but we're likely talking about somewhere between 1200 to 600 BC and probably closer to the later end of that range for the authorship of the book. There is another factor that influences the date range offered by scholars, and that is the absence of any mention of a prominent Israelite cultic site, in particular the temple built by Solomon. This makes some interpreters suggest a pre-Solomon date for the authorship, placing the date between 1200 and 1000 BC. But the man himself, Job, is not an Israelite. So there's a question of whether the temple needs to be mentioned at all. He doesn't live in Israel. It's actually the very fact that Job is not an Israelite that is the reason why Ezekiel mentioned him alongside other non-Israelite believers. So, who was the man we know as Job? There is a long-standing tradition that he may actually appear elsewhere in the Bible, appearing as a dialectic variant of the name, which we read as Jobab. Interesting. So where do we find this Jobab guy? Actually, these Jobabs, or Jobabim, if you like, because they turn up in nine different places in the ESV, and for reasons you'll quickly understand, they can't all be the same guy. So, let's meet our contestants. Jobab number one, come on down. Jobab number one likes candlelight dinners and long walks on the beach. All right, and we find him in Genesis 10, verse 29. It says, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab, all these were the sons of Joktan. Jobab number two, come on down. Jobab number two is tall, dark, and handsome and likes his women the way he likes his coffee. Strong, black, and hot and available at the supermarket. All right. And uh, we'll find this one in Genesis 36, verses 33 to 34. Bilah died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died and Hashem of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Jobab number three, come on down. Jobab number three is a shy guy, the kind of guy who will always be yours. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Uh, number three, Joshua 11, verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he said to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph. And now we're back to Jobab number one. Yeah, yeah, same guy. Turns up again because Chronicles just likes to repeat stuff we've already read. First uh, Chronicles one twenty three, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And uh, here's Jobab number two making his second appearance. Will the sequel be better than the original? First Chronicles one forty four to forty five. Bilah died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Hosham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. I don't think it was better at all. Jobab dumb. I think it was one of those. I, I think that was one of the sequels that just kind of rips off the first movie so hard that you feel like you're just watching the first one again. Gotcha. Almost like Home Alone 2. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, Jobab number four, come on down. Now, Jobab number four, he's a fancy man. He enjoys horse riding and champagne breakfast at the country club, much like yourself, Tim. Yeah, who doesn't? First uh, Chronicles 8, verse 9. He fathered sons by Hodesh, his wife, Jobab, Zibia, Misha, and Malcam. Hodesh. What a great name. 
Indeed. We've almost finished this dating game, folks. Don't give up on us yet. Jobab number five, come on down. Jobab number five prefers to snuggle on the couch for a bit of Netflix and chill. Morning. Yeah. Yeah. First Chronicles 8, verse 18. Ishmarai, Islia, and Jobab were the sons of El Payal. Okay, so the question is, will the real Job please stand up? Do any of these five Jobabs that we've mentioned actually qualify as the guy in the story? To tell the truth, we need to start looking at the text. What we can learn from the book of Job, and uh, can we get a perfect match with any of these five eligible bachelors? So here we have the first three verses of the book of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, and the partridge in the pear tree, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. Now, let's start with geography. The land of Uz is vaguely east and south of Israel. Sometimes it's equated with Edom and sometimes with Arabia. It's kind of on that border there. It's definitely not in Canaan. It's not in Israel. It's not in Judah. Okay, so that location immediately rules out Jobab's three, four, and five. Sorry, guys, the tribe has spoken. You're voted off the island, so pack your bags. Mm. Next, we turn to the description. Job is a very wealthy, highly honoured man with a large family. That's information that we can't share with candidate number one, son of Joktan. And it might be an argument from silence, but we just don't know what we don't know. So if it was that guy, we couldn't say. That's different from our last remaining Jobab, the Edomite king. We don't have the small details, but we know he was a king, so you'd have to assume he was well off, like the biblical Job. He was like the, the greatest man of the East. So we might have a vague location and some indication of wealth or status. Now let's look at timing. According to Genesis 36, the list of Edomite kings all reigned before there was a king in Israel. That puts Jobab well before the first millennium BC. It may still be just within our window of time, which we established had started with the beginning of the Iron Age in the Middle East, but likely earlier if we count the seven generations back to Jobab from the late 11th century when Saul became Israel's first king. I just want to mention also that um, in that passage in, uh, where are we, Genesis 36, uh, Bela was the king before Jobab, and I'm pretty sure he's the guy uh, who had the city Bela named after him. You find that in Genesis 14, and we were talking about that last week, the Battle of Nine Kings, right? So that's how far back these guys go. This is Abraham's time. We're a long way before Moses and Joshua and all that, and still uh, a long way from the time of the kings, so that's a long way back. Now, where this becomes a problem is when we consider other chronological information. We're told of the Sabians and the Chaldeans attacking Job. Now, if our guy from Genesis 36 is the real Job, he's at least a couple of centuries too early because neither the Sabians or the Chaldeans existed back then. They came back later. If the historical Job really was attacked by those groups, then he had to live during the time of the kings of Israel or later, but certainly not earlier. So, I'm sorry, Genesis 36, Jobab, but you are the weakest link. Goodbye. 
So that means that all five Joe Babs have struck out and we have no more biblical candidates for identification of the biblical Job. That leaves us with two options. What are they, Tim? Well, option one is that Job was a real historical figure about whom we know nothing outside of this book. And option two is that Job is not a historical figure at all, which means that the author is free to fabricate a story around him without regard to geography, chronology or historicity. He can just use whatever elements kind of suit his purpose. I should point out that what we know of the land of us is quite obscure. And there are alternatives that don't necessarily feature prominently in the biblical narrative. One possible location is in southern Arabia, which would fit geographically with the location of the Sabians. And if Job lived down there, it is completely understandable that he would not feature in the biblical record outside of the book that bears his name. But I wonder how likely it is that we would find someone who honours the God of Israel so far away from the land. According to the worldview of the ancient Near East, you had to remain in the land where your God was in charge because if you didn't live in the land, then that God had no jurisdiction where you were. I can see that working in Edom because they're all sons of Abraham after all. But southern Arabia is really quite a stretch. So if Job was not Israelite, not Arabian, not Edomite, not early, not late, then the only thing we know is that we have this story about him. And maybe he was a real person, but we can't say that with authority, which leaves us with Job as the protagonist of a well-known Jewish story. And that might bother some people who need him to be a real person in history or else God is a liar. I mean, these are the people who will fudge figures or shift boundary stones to get their favourite guy to be the winner. But we're all adults here, as I've said before. We can look at the data and be okay with it not wrapping up in a neat package. We don't have to prove historicity by being dishonest so that we can defend God against claims that he is dishonest. We can take a story for what it teaches and not have its lack of historicity undermine its message, can't we? Remember that the message of the book is not about justice or fairness or any other human standard of judgment. It's about the wisdom of God. And God could tell us about that without a story about a guy trying to figure that out. But we wouldn't get it. So there you go. Game over. Wow. Mic drop there. Uh, Well, that's all, folks. What a way to end it. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. And we'll dive back into Genesis 3 to see what takes place when they eat the forbidden fruit. Yeah, see you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grace Forsaken, graceforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon, paperback, and Google Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com, giantanswers.com, or Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog and have some socials, but you
subscribe to the Rant Chat Show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. I don't know that last song. Man, you've really given me a lot of stuff to do. What is this? Yeah. You know, I have to have to focus and pay attention. I didn't agree to that. Let's let's try. And apologies in advance if I stuff this up. Uh, yeah. 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 Mm. Exactly. Uh, yeah, anyway, uh, we'll, we'll get started. It's your line. Is it? Because I'm not in bold. Oh, oh no, you're I am. Sorry. Um, yeah. It's good. It's good, folks. I was you, looking at Jane, Chris. You were reading the summary. Yeah. I was. I, I I did that last week as well. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> by the way, you got to stop posting photos of your work donuts. You're making me very jealous. Well, I don't post all of them, so. Um, oh, now I'm more jealous. Now I know well, there's more. You're getting more donuts than what you're telling me. Yeah, we had more today and yesterday. Um, but um, Jeez, where do you, hey, can I get a job where you are? Well, I mean, it's very different <laughs> from working with the private sector. You know, this is I'm working for the government, but yeah, the private sector is completely even more than this. You know, well, I can see that. I, I should start working for the government so I can be like drowning in donuts. That's just amazing. But you have to pay for them yourself, whereas the private sector, they get paid, they get bought for you. And, uh, you know, like these morning teas and afternoon teas and social clubs and all that, but, you know, but we're using taxpayers' money. Um, but, you know, you, you're, yeah. in, you're in town, you know, you can just sort of pop out, grab some donuts, you know. Yeah, I went to the comic shop at lunchtime today. Um, but no, I'm very blessed. I'm very thankful for my job. They're a great bunch of people. Mm. Another girl left on Friday. Yeah, I don't know. Well, because they're it's more ambitious. It's such an awesome place because there's donuts. <laughs> well, I mean, they just go to other government departments. People other than me are ambitious. I've never been ambitious in any way, shape or form. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm settling in. I'm going to stay here until I die. Yeah, I, I, I was ambitious to a point. No. So I'm good where I am. Or if I was to go into something else, it'd have to be totally different because I couldn't do the same thing for less money now. Yeah, no, I get that. Donuts might sway me, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, yes, and it's pretty noisy at my house because all the kids are practising various instruments. Ah. Uh, um, are, they, are they playing recorder? Um, sax, piano, Oh, so these Violin. are legitimate instruments then. Like, recorders just invented for yes. school, I'm sure. Like, nobody plays recorder outside of school. No, that is probably really true. I'm a recorder, and um, I tried to throw it away, and the kids found it, and they just play with it outside, and they just run around blowing it as hard as they can. Sounds delightful. We'll uh, talk more about curses in a future episode. G'day, Fiat. G'day. What? <laughs> Very close to profanity then. <laughs> <laughs> I have had some Southern Comfort lemonade, but um, oh, unconscious profanity. Uh, I generally try and avoid doing a lot of... Uh, um, <clears throat> it's actually the very fact that Job is not an Israelite. That's the reason why Ezekiel mentioned him along... along uh, that was... Uh, that, that raised a bit of a smile from you earlier. We we thinking about uh, perhaps uh, the result of overexposure at the beach in uh, minimal attire. <laughs> Jock tan, got it. Well, you always pull out some head scratches, Tim.
Howard the Duck. They're going to have to like just retcon that and start again. Yeah. Well, he did appear in uh, Games of the Galaxy 2. One of the end yeah, yeah, Howard the Duck. But yeah, that was more like a cameo. But uh, yes. They, they sort of, you know, they, they do these post credit scenes and then they leave you hanging for 10 years. Like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. 